You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. We've talked about regenerative cotton production on the show before, but what about regenerative silk? In this week's episodes, I talked to Hilmund Hui, Vice President of Bombex and Vice President at PFG. PFG is a manufacturing company with factories across mainland China and Hong Kong doing textile production, dyeing, weaving, cut and sew, and logistics. They have a long history of producing for brands like Eileen Fisher. Bombex is a subset of PFG, formed in 2018. Their focus is on regenerative silk production and transforming the way silk is produced, traded, and consumed. They're on a mission to do everything from dirt to fabric and beyond. In this episode, Hillman shares a bit about his entry point into the world of garment manufacturing writ large, the evolution of PFG, and how this ultimately led to Bombix. We then dive into the details. What does regenerative silk production even mean, and how does Bombix approach it? In part two of our chat, also out today, we talk about barriers. If regenerative silk is so great, why doesn't everyone do it? Was everyone within PFG on board with the idea of Bombix from the beginning? What did getting the green light for this project take? And why did the push for Bombix come from within rather than, as many might assume, from the brands for which they produce? And if you enjoy listening to Hillmond, which I don't know why you wouldn't because he is incredibly articulate and eloquent, uh, be sure to come back in two weeks on 30 November for our next set of episodes, which is a conversation between Hillmond Mustang Group, which is an India-based manufacturing company, and somebody working in ESG investing for Triodos Bank. This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. Hilmund, let's start with your personal story and how you even ended up in the world of apparel manufacturing. Okay. Um, I mean, I'd like to think that I was born into it. Um, the, the, the umbrella company is owned by my father. And uh, I think right when I was born, or not long after I was born, that's when the company started working with Eileen Fisher. And that's sort of, that's the beginnings of the whole company. But I sort of, I'm almost the same age as the, as, as the company. And when I was very young, as the company was growing, along with Eileen Fisher, along with the sustainability concepts, uh, my father would take me to the stores and look at the product uh, on the shelves and and on the racks and say, "Look, the Eileen Fisher stores, like I mean, I mean, department stores, yeah, uh, well, yeah, department stores that had the Eileen Fisher product or you know whatever product before um, mm-hmm. that we were making." And he was like, "He was like behind this garment." I know it sounds sort of you know showy and all drama, like behind this garment, there's actually no. But he was telling me that there's in order for this garment to have gotten here, it had passed 
so many different levels of production. It had crossed so many pairs of hands. It had touched so many worlds and lives before you see it here. So it's not just about how nice it looks on this hanger. This actually affects so much more of the world than you know. That was one of the mm-hmm. things that he taught me from, from, from when I was very, very young. Um, and of course, afterward, he started teaching me about things like quality and production and so forth. And then about six years ago, he was like, it's time, come back. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, yeah. So I was, I, I, I was, I was, um, I went to school in, in Toronto. I went to Ryerson for communications. And, you know, in my time growing up, I went to Canada actually when I was five. So I grew up there. And in my time there, I remember learning about a recycling bin. Uh, and I remember learning about these concepts uh, slowly. And then coming back, uh, you know, six years ago to actually be fully immersed into the world of fashion. It was, I mean, as much as my father told me that it was a whole world and it was a whole universe that it touched so many lives, I Really, you couldn't believe it until you see it with your own eyes. It is so vast. It is so very oh vast. It's great. so many people uh, that it touches. I'm about to release something that touches on that, but um, it is it is huge. And so I was like, "This is this is my chance. This is my yeah. chance." I thought I was going to change the world when I was young. I was like, "I'm going to do something. I'm going to invent something that's going to change the world." <laughs> I realized very quickly that that wasn't going to happen. I'm just not that kind of guy. But I also realized after coming into this industry that I also had the chance to change the lives of maybe not each and every one, but a lot of the workers that work with us, a lot of the farmers that you know we're working with now, a lot of the people along the supply chain that we work with, and they each have their own respective worlds. And I think that's enough for me. I think if I can do that, that's good. Okay. So before we talk about Bombix... Can you just give a little bit of context for how the company is structured and what PFG is versus these entities underneath PFG of which Bombex is one? Because I think that's important to understand as we sort of talk through the origins of Bombex. So yeah, so the two companies, so un- under the, the mother umbrella PFG, uh, there's Bombex and then there's NCKF. Uh, actually, NCKF came first. So PFG uh, was a trading company a little over 20 years ago, 20, 24, 25 years ago or so. And one of the main customers, the major customer for PFG over the past um, 20 years or so was Eileen Fisher. And so Mm. if you know Eileen Fisher, you know the way that they approach sustainability and social responsibility. So a a lot of what the company has done had already... Uh, included sustainability and social responsibility, uh, but mainly as hoops to jump through to get orders to to um, to fulfill you know the customers' requirements. And then um, w- the company was starting to this, the company was starting to get some pressure from the customer um, regarding the pricing because the facilities that the company had built over the years were along the coastline as well as the partner facilities that the company worked with all along the coastline. And obviously over the years, the, 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 the wages started to rise along the coastline. And so one of the ways that the company thought to remedy that or mitigate that was to move further inland as opposed to uh, going offshore. And one of the reasons was that, you know, we found that a lot of our, our workers were actually from inland. They sort of, they traveled to the coastline because that's where all the uh, the factories were at the time. They work, you know, the year and then for Chinese New Year, they go home. And we were looking at one of our facilities in, in, in Zhuhai, um, 
found that a lot of the, the workers were from Sichuan. So when we were looking to move more inland, we looked at Sichuan as a place and we found that the, the standard of the living, the cost of living there was cheaper and the wages were actually cheaper. And so the company decided, okay, we're going to build the facility there. We're going to move all our workers back home. We're going to bring um, the work to the workers as opposed to the other way around and also benefit from uh, the, the, the cheaper wages that are there. And this is right around the time when, when, when I joined the company about five years ago. So... Um, you and know, so how, was that when NCKF was born? Or NCKF, NCKF, right. NCKF was born right around then. Okay. I mean, the idea had already been thought up uh, mm-hmm. to move more inland into Sichuan. Um, and that was thought up, I think, maybe two years before I joined. So mm-hmm. like eight years ago now or something like that. Uh, yeah, right around eight years ago, it was thought up. And, and back then, uh, the first thing that we did was we found a place for a temporary facility where our workers could then go home during Chinese New Year and then stay with us up there as opposed to having to come back down the coastline to our facility down south. And this idea of putting garment factories closer to where people actually live and within the communities in which garment factory workers live is an idea that's come up before on our show. And if you're interested in hearing more about that, I highly recommend going back to check out episode three when we talk to Pete Holton, the owner of Pactix, the company that I used to work for. But Hillman, before we move on, I just want to clarify, was PFG a trading company at that point or were you... Did you already own some of your own production facilities prior to that? We've switched over prior to that, but we were okay. also we're doing both. It was sort of like um, yeah, yeah, like a hybrid. So we owned the facility in Zhuhai, but we also had other partner facilities along the coastline. Okay, okay, so you, okay, so you already were owning those production facility that exactly. production facility. I mean, I imagine there were barriers. I mean, it sounds it sounds straightforward to say, oh, we're going to go make a garment factory where nobody else has a garment factory, but. Actually, I think often it's that's not really the case. I mean, is that right? Or <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was tough. I, I mean, it was a huge undertaking because another part of the, uh, of 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 the project was the whole sustainability part that I insisted on 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 looking at because at the time, if I'm honest, it wasn't exactly top of mind for the company. It was really more of like. Um, more of like, okay, we're going to save money on wages and we're going to you know, make more profit because the company is asking us to drop our pricing. But being that we're building a facility from scratch, uh, it, was, it would have been much easier for us to, to, to do all of the sustainability things we wanted to do uh, when building it from scratch as opposed to trying to convert a new, an existing facility because some things you need the production to stop to actually change. And so that was one of the hard things, but also um, one of the good things because we were building a new facility, but the place that we were building a new facility, I mean, the infrastructure wasn't there yet. I mean, even today, I mean, there are traffic lights that are newly going up. And in the past, um, I don't know, in the past five years, I've watched this place change from, a, 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 you know, farmland into more and more facilities coming in. Uh, we were lucky because we weren't the only facility there next to us. Now that facility was there before is, if I'm not mistaken, a manufacturing facility for pig feed. So that facility was already there. Um, that road was already there. We were lucky. But uh, it was part of like behind our manufacturing park, behind our manufacturing complex, those roads weren't quite there when we first showed up. And it also, I guess, it also just happened to be a place where the local government decided, okay, we we, we, we need to beef up this area. We need to develop this area. And... They saw us as the right kind of company coming in um, 
to 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 help their GDP, to help their their situation, to help their um, sort of application to the higher ups to to start building this road. And it was a similar case with our farms as well. Um, and this is, I'm talking about the Bombic side of things, with the agriculture side of things too. At this point. Right. So that's one, one thing I want, a link I want to clarify. So you are on the coast, you decide about five to eight years ago to move inland uh, for a whole host of reasons. How do you go from that? Because I assume that when you were producing before for Eileen Fisher and other companies, you weren't only making silk and also that you were only doing at that stage cut and sew. So correct me if I've gotten it wrong. So how do you go from that to deciding to set up a dirt to fabric silk production facility or company right. rather. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So, I mean, at some point, at some point over the years, I think it must've been like maybe 12, 12 to 15 years ago. I'm not exactly sure on the dates, but it was right around 12 to 15 years ago. Uh, we actually, we, we built a dye house um, uh, also coastline in Suzhou. And again, also, uh, you know, from, the requirements or I guess encouragement. I, I wasn't there for those conversations, so I don't know exactly the word I'm supposed to use, but it was sort of like this thing that we pioneered with Eileen Fisher uh, where we got blue sign for the dyeing facility, the dye house. And so at that point we were, we were buying raw material and dyeing our, our, our raw material and then sending it to our facility to be, to, to, to be cut and sewn. Um, about like eight years ago when we were thinking about this new facility in Citron, um, right at that time, I mean, it just so happened that over 70, 80% of our production was actually silk. And so a lot of our, a lot of our material was silk. It was sort of one of those, um, sort of high value items we were doing a lot of. And, and we were, I mean, it was almost as if the stars had aligned because when we went to Sichuan, we also found out that it was the traditional home of silk where we decided to build our facility, uh, in Nanchong, inside Nanchong. It's, the legendary sort of birthplace or uh, discovery place of silk. And I mean, you, you put the two and two together. It was almost as if the universe wanted us to do this. Um, you know, we were doing that much silk. We're moving our facility there anyway. And we also wanted to control a particular raw material from the, from the early stages. Again, at the beginning, it was about a margin thing. It was about a cost thing because when we looked at the traditional way of, of, you know, the, the, the traditional supply chain for silk, there are middlemen between each stage of production. So say uh, from the farm, just from the farm to the cocoon processing and filament uh, uh, extraction, there's at least one level of middlemen that then buy from the farmers and then they resell to the facility that then goes to process it. And then from the filament extraction um, and then the weaving to the, to the dye house, again, another middleman there that's making their money on top of that. And then from the dye house, then to... Um, I don't know, printing or then to uh, cut and sew, if it goes right to cut and sew, then there's another middleman there. And then from the, from the factory to the customer, then there's probably a few middlemen there. See, all of that stuff, originally, the, the idea was to cut them all out. We were going to do the entire thing ourselves, which means a whole bunch uh, more margin that originally we were going to be able to reduce the cost for um, our customers and get more business that way. But again, as I came into the company, I was like, wait, hold on, guys. If we're doing this whole thing ourselves, wouldn't it be great if we could do it a different way? Wouldn't it be great if we could do it in a way that other people aren't doing it? Like, for example, sustainably? I don't know. Just throwing it out there. I mean, that meeting was tough for me because it was, um, it, 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 was a, it was a concept that wasn't accepted or understood by a lot of the existing management 
at the time. And, and, and I get it because sustainable is something that in their minds, it costs money. It costs a lot of money. So it was, uh, it was hard to convince, but I'm, I mean, I'm happy to tell you that I, I was just up there. Um, uh, but no, I mean, I think they're seeing it. I think they're seeing it because uh, over, over the past, oh, I don't know, three years, the Chinese government has spoken more and more and, and um, more openly and more vocally about the sustainability issues that we're facing uh, as a country, you know, in China, because that's where our supply chain is. I mean, it's not just a national problem. It's obviously it's, it's, it's a global problem. Um, and we're all talking about it in our, in our industry. And I think anybody, I think everybody's talking about it in their industries. I mean, in, in, in the motor vehicle industry, they've been talking about it for a long time. I mean, you have the new regulations now that are really, really, uh, you know, putting the hammer down on, the products that they make. And it's a matter of time. It really is a matter of time before it gets to uh, our industry, but it's, it's, I think we're running out of time. It's not about uh, stopping the impact that you have on the environment. It's about trying to reverse it. Now it's about trying uh, not just to limit your impact, but to actually uh, create some positive impact. And so with, with our, with our, with our sericulture project, um, when when we were first talking about oh we're gonna go we're gonna go talk to the government we're gonna get this farmland we're gonna do sericulture this is what we're going to do I was like no we got to do organic sorry there's there's no argument we must do organic and obviously they looked at me like I was crazy like okay you can do a little bit but bef- you know after that I was I, I was in India and um, I was speaking to somebody uh, from 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 Patagonia Rick Ridgeway I think his name was. Rick Ridgeway uh, at, at a conference. And I told him that this is what we're doing. Isn't it great? This is what we're doing. If there's anything you can tell me, if there's any sort of hints or advice that you can give me, um, because agriculture isn't, I mean, I'm, I'm out of my league here. I'm out of my depth. And he said, you know, they're looking at something called regenerative agriculture uh, for their, I think it was cotton farms at the time that he said he was looking at it. And he told me to go on the website and he told me to take a look at all this stuff. And I said, you know what? This is great. This is absolutely incredible because this is a step above Organic. I mean, I thought that organic was the golden standard. Turns out it's not. It's not just about limiting your impact. It's about regenerating the land so that it can, you know, sequester more carbon. It can, it can help solve our, our GHG emission issues, our, our, our problems. I mean, I personally really think that this is the way. I think this is the way to help us, um, not just limit our emissions from, I mean, if more, 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 I don't want to say selfishly, but more sort of, if I'm thinking in, in, in a micro level, the emissions that we make from our garment manufacturing facilities and all the other facilities that we're going to make in our vertical supply chain, I think that our farms can help uh, not just limit that, but also reverse that just in the way that we plan and, 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 and plant our, our, our crops and our farms. And so that's sort of where, uh, you know, Bombix came from. That's sort of where the whole idea of Bombix came from. So I want to push you to get like for people who are listening and who have maybe never ever thought about how silk is made. Could you describe maybe a little bit about the I don't know if the right word is conventional silk production um, versus, you know, what exactly does regenerative silk production look like? What are the production steps and processes that are involved in, in doing that? I mean, um, 
If, I mean, so for us in Bombix, we, we split it up into two parts, just for Bombix. So this is, we're not counting the cut and sew bit right now. It's just mm-hmm. from, from dirt to fabric. Uh, we cut it up into two parts, the production bit, which is everything after the farm. So as soon as the, the, the cocoon uh, gets collected and then the, the, the filament starts to get real, that's where production starts up until the end of the fabric. Now this part, the production bit, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly similar to, to any other kind of production, if I'm honest. Um, and the solutions that we have to take uh, are just as creative as if we were looking at any other facility that were producing silk. Um, like, for example, at a garment facility, we've covered the roofs with solar power, solar panels. That's something that we plan to do with all of these um, production facilities, uh, with with the, the, the wastewater discharge in the dye houses that we have to build. It's the same thing. We have to worry about um, the pH levels, the chemicals that come out. We have to worry about the wastewater treatment facilities that have to come with um, the dyeing and 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 uh, printing facilities. That's all. That's all the same thing. You know, the GOTS certifications, how they look at these facilities. It's the same thing uh, as with you know any other facility that's that's producing any other um, fabrics. I mean, the one thing that might be different with other uh, materials might be the degumming stage. Uh, where we have to get rid of the Saracen uh, because the way that consumers today conceive silk is silk without the Saracen. It's like this really nice, shiny, soft, drapey material. But with the Saracen, um, it sort of feels like a chintzed curtain fabric because um, it's that glue, right? So yeah. uh, that's the production bit. I mean, it's it's we're going to get the certifications, but with with agriculture bit, that's where the biggest changes are happening um, with 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 sericulture, with the planting of mulberry trees, with the rearing of, of silkworms. I mean, all all of the agricultural issues that you see in, say, I don't know, apple farming or farming any other food uh, or any other uh, organic material like cotton and linen. I mean, those issues still apply to silk. I mean, it's the tilling of the land. It's the use of, uh, you know, heavy machinery. It's the emissions that, um, that, that those emit. It's, it's destroying, um, the soil in a way that you release the carbon back into the atmosphere. It's all of these things. It's using pesticides. It's using, um, you know, chemical and synthetic fertilizers and synthetic nutrients that sort of drain the land, um, of biodiversity, it's monocropping and, and, and not allowing the land to sort of build um, bacterial cultures within the soil. It's all of these things. All of these things are the same um, in sericulture as it would be in any other farm you might find in, I don't know, middle America or wherever. It's, it's the same thing. And so when we talk about regenerative agriculture, there are, there's a lot of overlap in some of the principles that we follow as with other um, farmers might follow, say, uh, things like terrace farming. You know, we, we, we would choose specifically uh, lands on, side of, on sides of hills um, so that we can utilize the rainfall as natural irrigation. But what we have to do is we have to build these terrace, uh, terrace farms so that the, the, the nutrients in the topsoil don't get washed away. The nutrients stay within the topsoil. Uh, intercropping or rotational cropping. This is huge for us this is massive i think that this is one of the most important at this stage one of the most important things that we have to do because prior to um 
bombix coming into those lands. It was monocropped. It was basically shove as many mulberry trees as you can into this land. And if those trees aren't going fast enough or big enough, shove some more chemicals in there so that the, the leaves get bigger and they grow tall and they go faster. That's just not the way to go because eventually that land will be rendered useless to grow anything at all. There's just aren't, there just isn't enough nutrients in there to grow anything because you're continually feeding these fake uh, nutrients in the soil. The soil will stop producing these nutrients by itself and then your mulberry trees won't even be able to uh, exist there anymore. So with rotational cropping uh, and, and, and intercropping, what we do is we plant numerous crops at the same time with our mulberry tree being the main crop. Uh, we plant these other crops between them, things like potatoes and peanuts and soybeans, because each crop, including the mulberry tree, will deplete and release various nutrients to and from the soil. And these nutrients within the soil, they actually create a situation where various different types of bacteria uh, can grow and thrive within the soil. And these uh, you know, bacteria, they feed off of the carbon that these crops will then absorb from the atmosphere. And their sole job is to make the nutrients in the soil more, um, I think the word is bioavailable, but basically more easily accessible by the plants on top of the soils so that they grow, um, you know, even stronger. And, and the different crops, what we do is we, we look at, uh, the various crops and the different nutrients they deplete and release back into the soil. And we do like a speed dating thing with our mulberry trees. So if our, our mulberry trees <laughs> are depleting a particular nutrient, we'll plant another crop in there to then replenish that particular nutrient. And if we find that there's, you know, particular nutrients that they both deplete, then we will rotate that intercrop out and plant another crop back in to then replenish that uh, particular nutrient. And with each crop that goes in, it comes with this, you know, I talked about the bacteria, but it also comes with this universe um, uh, that, that, that it lives in. And then it begins to work with the other universes that exist on a farm to create, um, you know, like a group of micro ecosystems that that sort of congregate into an, a larger agro ecosystem that protects itself from you know agricultural illnesses, um, you know unstable weather and 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 so because they grow he they, they grow healthier, and then on top of that we do things like uh, we use this organic limestone ash to paint the tree trunks of our mulberry trees, and for some reason uh, I don't know exactly why because I'm not you know a physicist or a scientist or a farmer but I don't know exactly why but um, I know that the farmers used limestone ash to prevent bugs from climbing up onto the trees. And I found that there was an organic version of it. And so we're going to buy the organic version of it, of course. Uh, and then these bugs, as they stay on the ground, uh, we deploy our bioorganic pest control. And these are chicken, geese, ducks that then eat up these bugs. And then when they go caca, then they fertilize the land. It's, you know, kind of circular. My mind is sort of spinning. There's so much information swirling around. And it reminds me actually of the last time that we explicitly talked about regenerative agriculture on this show. And that was when Jesse and I interviewed Danielle Arzaga of Kandiani Denim, who talked, who is um, uh, a denim manufacturer, vertically integrated. And she talked about why Kandiani was opting for regenerative cotton production as opposed to and and actually even biodegradability over recycling so if listeners are interested in learning more about regenerative agriculture i highly recommend going back to check out those episodes and that's episode 16 but hillmond as i think about even just the factory that i used to manage which was cut and sew level 
and how complicated and how difficult it was to keep our orders and our capacity in equilibrium when at the raw material level, the fabrics we were buying had relatively stable supply, at least before COVID, and how difficult that was. And now you're introducing all these new variables like animals. And so maybe the the answer to this question is actually really obvious and I've just answered it, but I'm curious your take. Why doesn't everyone do this? Why doesn't every silk, and I don't know if manufacturer is the right word here because you're also doing the agricultural piece of it, but why doesn't everyone do this? And especially, um, I should also point out or I should highlight that I saw on your website that the price of this silk that you're making isn't even more expensive than conventional silk. But to hear Hillman's answer to this question, you'll just have to tune in to part two, which is also out today. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast, or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to Off the Beaten Path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that.